Welcome to the Dietitian's Dish Podcast. We are Gina and Nicole, two dietitian mamas and good friends living in Ohio and Michigan. This is a podcast dedicated to making whole family wellness more fun and less stressful. Whether you're listening in the car or slumped on the couch with a glass of wine, welcome. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us. I'm Gina. And I'm Nicole. And today we are dishing with Dr. Heather Hirsch about perimenopause. And I'm so excited. But first, let's do some catching up since it's been forever. Nicole, what's new? It has been a while, hasn't it? Mm -hmm. Uh, Work's been crazy. We just hired a pharmacist CDE. How exciting is that? Is that, I, I don't know. Yeah, is that exciting? <laughs> I'm super excited. So traditionally, <laughs> diabetes education programs are, or CDEs, the majority are dietitians and nurses. Kind of, it was mostly nurses. Now it seems that dietitians, just by nature of kind of outpatient work, are more positioned to kind of accrue those hours required for the CDE. Uh, and pharmacists are fairly rare. And just being a more expensive resource, of course, they're um, kind of hard to justify, but... Went to bat, got it. Um, we're okay, so I just pumped. realized what you were saying. So a pharmacist CDE, and I and I was blanking on what CDE is, Certified Sorry, Diabetes, diabetes educator. educator. Yeah, which is now makes Certified so Diabetes sense. Care and Education Specialist for anybody who cares. But CDCES is too much of a mouthful. So I, I'm holding firm to CDE just as I am RD and not RDN. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. But I, more and more people are using that. I feel like I'm being forced. It's fine. Digging in my heels. Yeah, so that was just a, a good win for the department. We definitely need help. I was looking at my schedule for Monday, and I have five patients, and I was like, ah, you know, those are all, wow. all hour long appointments. Um, mm. never mind all the emails that flow in and payroll mm. getting done. It just makes for kind of a busy day. Mm-hmm. Um, on the home front, we are just trying to figure out what we're going to do with Shay all summer. So you know, oh. she's in kindergarten this year, and that leaves all summer that we're gonna. I have to figure out what we're doing with her. We got a couple options. Um, so we'll see. But that's going to just kind of create some a different morning shuffle. Um, and potentially Mark will be back in the office at least some of the time. So, um, yeah, my stay-at-home husband is going to be uh, a little bit less around, which is <laughs> I've had a I've had a cushy COVID life. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, with you his know. kind of work from home status, which has been nice. Uh, Shay uh, learned how to tie her shoes, which is awesome. We're going, I shared, I think last episode about our boat kind of share that we joined. And so we're going for training next week. We have classroom time and we have boat time. And I'll be honest, like, I don't plan to drive that boat. So I hope I pass. Like, (laughs) I, I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a participant. I'm not a, I'm not in charge. That's just too much. I can go on open water. I'm fine. But like docking a boat, it's just, that's just too much stress. Um, Mm -hmm. And I guess that's it. Yeah. Nothing overly exciting. Okay. What about you? Kind of same. Uh, You know, the most exciting thing that's happened to me since the last time we talked is that I officially became a certified intuitive eating counselor, which is amazing. Yeah. I'm very excited about that. So thank you. So I plan to start offering consultations obviously on a very, very, very part-time basis since I still have a full-time job, but I'm going to start offering them at uh, 5 to 6 and 6 to 7 p.m. on, or I'm sorry, 6 to 7 and 7 to 8 most likely, which I know sounds ludicrous, but during the week and then on the weekends in the morning on Saturday. So just start with that. And then once I accrue a certain number, just kind of start to think about, I don't know, other options. So my family 
specifically my husband, isn't going wild with me working all the time. And of course, so I'm not going wild with me working all the time with the with the podcast and with that and with a full time job. So I, you know, I'm going to take it day by day, step by step. But I do plan on doing something with that, and I'm very excited for for that. Let's see. This weekend we're going on a mini trip, and as we, as in me and Paige, we're kind of having a girls' weekend getaway. We're going to visit my uncle who lives in Cincinnati. So we'll probably explore Cincinnati, go to a nice dinner. It'll just be a quick there, sleep, and then come back. But just we needed to get out. And then, of course, Nick and and Cameron will have a bros weekend. They've been talking about it for a while. That's cute. Good idea. (laughs) Yes, it it needed to happen. So it's not very far from here. So that will be fun. And then also, I'm really excited. I Have you ever heard of a... Okay, it's it's CSA and it stands for Community Community Sustainable... Oh, okay. I thought it was shared, shared agriculture. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I actually was thinking it was sustainable agriculture, but I think shared actually makes more sense. So a CSA, essentially, you can actually buy portions of a, a plot of a garden or, I mean, I think they even do, I don't know if it's the same thing, but like CSA with meat where you can like buy mm-hmm. a portion yeah. of a cow or a pig. So I bought, I guess, a portion of the crop at, of a local farm and it's actually called Pages Produce. And I didn't go searching for a place called Pages Produce, obviously, but it was the first one that came out up in our area and it looked really great. So of course I jumped right on it and told Paige right away. So we get to pick up a, you know, produce, whether it's fruit or vegetables. I think that's all they had. Maybe some flowers every once in a while, once a week at our local farmer's market. So I'm just really excited about that. The last time I did this, I will say I didn't have the best experience because the farm where we got this share of of vegetables and fruit, I would say every week, pretty much for about six weeks straight, all we got were green beans and bok choy. But that is the risk you take because, you know, a, a certain um, crop might not do well. You know, we just had snow at the end of April. Who knows how that's going to affect different, um, you know, farmers crops this this summer and spring. I have no idea, but I'm sure it probably will. It probably did some significant damage on some things. So because of that, because the weather is so, you know, all over the place, you never really know what you're going to get or what is going to actually work well on that um, farm this season. So they pretty much said, here's what we normally have, but really it's all weather dependent. I just hope we don't get stuck with bok choy and green beans again. So (laughs) not that I don't love those foods, but you know, after six weeks, it was a little daunting. But I'm excited about that. Yeah, the one I did, it was we did like a quarter share, which just because I don't know, I did I didn't want anything to go to waste. And it seemed like I I would get a lot of variety, but I would get like two baby potatoes. And I was like, well, that's a good start. That's a good that'll feed one half of one of us. You know, it was just it wasn't enough to do a whole lot with. Um, So, yeah, there's so many different CSAs out there, though. And and we got a, a half share because mm-hmm. I did um, I I I had heard that before we got it so be, last time I think we got we got a full share and it was way too mm-hmm. much too much so this time we did a half share so hopefully it's a step up from being too little two potatoes and a step down from being <laughs> whoa way too much where you're just completely overwhelmed all right exciting all right yeah. Moving on, before we begin, just a quick favor to ask everyone, if you like this podcast, please write us a review. Reviews on iTunes are everything to us, and they really help us reach more people. So, of course, we'd appreciate it very much. 
So today we have Dr. Heather Hirsch. She's a board certified in internal medicine and has a specialty in gynecology with a focus on menopausal hormonal therapy, contraception and family planning, breast health and sexual dysfunction. Dr. Hirsch is the host of honestly one of my favorite podcasts. It's called uh, Women's Health by Heather Hirsch. Dr. Hirsch is a mom of three now, and let's go ahead and welcome Dr. Heather Hirsch to our podcast. So today we've got Dr. Heather Hirsch on our podcast. Welcome. We are so excited to have you. So just go ahead and tell us a little bit about you and your background. Yes. So thanks so much for having me on. Uh, I am the clinical program director of the Menopause and Midlife Clinic at the Bramman Women's Hospital, where I see patients on a consultative basis here in Boston, Massachusetts. Now, um, a lot of people ask what my background is. And without you know spending way too long on this, I started my career actually in OBGYN. I switched to internal medicine, so I'm board certified in internal medicine. After that, I did a two-year training program at the Cleveland Clinic where I really grew my passion for taking care of women in midlife because I really saw how underserved this population was and what a big gap in care it was sort of after we had our babies and, you know, they started walking women just kind of got forgotten about a little bit. So from there, I did a hybrid practice of internal medicine and menopause consult. And now I just do menopause, but I really use that word as a synonym for perimenopause, PMS, PMDD, um, vaginal health, sexual health, breast health, bone health, you know, all of those things. So that's what I do. Wow. (laughs) You are busy and that's, it's so important. I, I agree. I mean, I am, you know, almost 40 and I appreciate even just listening to your podcast. I realize that I need to find a different healthcare provider who specializes in more of what you just said. <laughs> I wish you were still in Columbus. That, that is like a missing <laughs> yeah. kind of piece of medicine is this like middle life. I like how you, that sounds so much better than middle age too. <laughs> yeah. It does. It does. It is a big missing piece and there's lots of reasons why certainly I think that it is a systems problem, meaning with education. And it's not really an individual physician's fault that he or she hasn't really been taught the importance of the midlife transition and menopause on chronic diseases and then just everyday things that women come to their doctors with, be it something simple as like bloating or my hair is falling out or I'm gaining weight. These are not simple problems to her. And Mm -hmm. if I could create more of me, which is part of my, my, my grand scheme of taking Mm -hmm. over the world, that would be wonderful. Yeah. (laughs) I love that. So kind of diving right in, talk to us a bit about perimenopause. What is it? When does it happen? How long does it last? Give us all the details. Yeah. So some days I, uh, you know, feel like I'm in the throes of perimenopause. Um, You know, so perimenopause is this mysterious time. So everyone kind of knows menopause and, and kind of has this idea that it's like the, you know, ugly stepsister, but perimenopause is like the ugly stepsisters, neighbors, kid who got forgotten about, right? Like it's, it's a whole nother thing. 
And perimenopause really just means the time leading up to menopause, but that is such a simplistic answer. This could be anywhere from one to 10 years, but symptoms of menopause, the classic ones like hot flashes, night sweats, vaginal dryness can start in perimenopause, but we're starting to learn more and more about perimenopause. And one of the big things that we see is a lot of mood disturbances and how important knowing about those mood disturbances are because they spill over into other things, such as the daily choices women make. Should we exercise? What should we Mm. eat? How do I want to spend my spare time? So it's a big concept, but really when we break it down to someone's everyday life, perimenopause can be a really big thing. Now, The average age of menopause in the U.S. is 51. I certainly have a very skewed view of what age menopause is because I see women who are so much younger. I see some women who are in their mid-50s. But if we even just say for the purposes of estimates, if the average age of if menopause is 51, that means most women are in perimenopause in their 40s, which is really the time when women become very busy. Kids, if you have them, they're growing up, you are gaining momentum at your career, you might be coming to the peak of your career, you know, you're looking at your partner, you've been married for 10, 15 years, you're, you know, you're, you're doing all of these things when perimenopause can hit. And that means that it like, goes unnoticed until it really smacks you in the face, right? Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. I am so looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah. I, I thought they said the 40s were supposed to be great. They sound kind of daunting. But they don't have okay. to be. No, no. Now I'm regretting everything. I no, said. no, not at all. But I'm smiling because it, it certainly there is this dual aspect of While those physiologic things can happen, I think the reason that so many people are becoming more interested in this stage of life is so that we know what to expect, so that we're better prepared, so that it's not this mysterious thing that we wake up one day and we're like, oh my gosh, I've hit rock bottom. This way, we will never get there and we will really open the dialogue before we get there and women can start talking to each other before that happens. So I think we're in this Mm -hmm. boat together of how do we empower women in their, whether it's their 20s or 30s or 40s or 50s or 60s. And I think just knowledge and education and talking about it through various different podcasts with different niches is really the way we're going to do that. Mm -hmm. And we appreciate, obviously, someone like you who knows so much about that time period and has the knowledge and the information to give to people like us. So that's, I think, fantastic. I was just thinking I have a colleague because I know you used to work in Columbus and that's where I'm, I, I live. And uh, she said she gave me your name. Actually, this was several, several years ago. And she basically said you changed her life. And she was in peri- perimenopause at the time. Um, yeah. So that's what really got me interested in you and others who, you know, have your same background. So I think that's that's great. All right. So. So, so that we don't have a terrible time during this time, we're going to list some common side effects of perimenopause, at least what we've seen, what we know of. And if, if you don't think these are actually common side effects, please tell us that they're not. Um, and these, I think, also transition and they overlap with menopause as well. And what we'd like you to do is to give us some tips uh, when it comes to lifestyle habits, food and or supplements that may help alleviate these side effects. 
And the first one that you've already sort of mentioned was hot flashes. I know that's, that's probably a big one. So what are some of your recommendations for that? Oh, hot flashes are such a, a cumbersome symptom because mm-hmm. particularly when they happen at night, this really disturbs sleep. Mm-hmm. And as someone who has had seasons of her life personally, and I'm in one of those seasons now, I actually just had a baby and I'm not sleeping great. And the disruption <laughs> in sleep is so significant in the impact it can have on you, your chronic health and things going forward. So hot flashes, certainly during the day, they're bothersome because they're disruptive. They're embarrassing. They can certainly cause you to need to even change your clothes, et cetera. And particularly bothersome at night because they can cause that tossing and turning. So in thinking about what are the things that you can do, I'm going to give you the obvious and the basic ones. And that is keep your room freezing cold. (laughs) Keep it so, so cold. I once had a patient tell me that her husband always told her he felt like he was on a cruise ship because of the number of fans going on (laughs) in their bedroom. But keep it really cold. Really minimize anything that's going to awaken you that's not a physiologic process. So you want to try and keep dogs and cats out of the bedroom, noises. So, you know, dark curtains, white noise, keep it cold. Um, You can try a wind down time, meaning have a nice bath or write in a journal or do a sleep meditation. You want to move any type of worrying or realize if you're worrying before bed and move it to the morning. Literally tell yourself, I'm going to move my worry period to the morning. And this takes some practice. Mm. Um, some really nice supplements for bedtime that I really like are magnesium oxide or magnesium citrate. Citrate being a little bit stronger because magnesium can help relax some women and it can help with sleep. Melatonin is another option. This is going to help you more stay asleep than, or sorry, no, 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 I take that back. This is going to help you Mm -hmm. fall asleep more than actually stay asleep. And those are two really nice supplements for bedtime. A lot of people will ask me about sleepy teas and things like that. When you look at the ingredients, it's mostly magnesium. So I'll turn it over to you guys to weigh in on what you think about that. But I will also say if they're really symptomatic, you are not getting more than five or six hours of sleep. You need to seek medical advice and perhaps Mm -hmm. treatment. Such as perhaps um, uh, uh, estrogen replacement therapy, I would assume, which we'll get into at the end or something like that. Exactly. Whether it's a non-hormonal option, whether it's hormone therapy, if you're not sleeping enough, if you are really sleeping like under five to six hours, you know, seven and seven to eight, seven to nine hours is really key and crucial. But if mm-hmm. you're really on average sleeping less than five to six hours, you are going to harm yourself by not seeking medical treatment because you are just really chipping away at your lifespan. And and some people tell me like, no, 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 I thrive. That's all I need. No, you need more than that. So definitely go talk to your doctor at that point. Yeah. There was actually just a study that popped up on my watch yesterday um, from, I don't know, I don't know who who it was from, but it said that those, a study just came out that those who get Six hours or less sleep are significant at a significant increased risk for dementia, which is scary. No 
No one wants to get that. So that's another reason too. even if you think that six hours is plenty or five hours is plenty. It's really, really not. Exactly. Um, and so I'm actually, Nicole, I'll let you go next, but I, I, I already have, I have sleep trouble as yeah, another one it. on here. Yeah, go for but it. would you say then, Dr. Hirsch, that it's the hot flashes most likely that are actually causing the sleep trouble? It's hard to say. There's certainly what I call a direct result of that estrogen level starting to decrease in perimenopause. And that physiologic thing can be the thing that wakes you up. Some women will tell me they wake up and they're worrying, they wake up and they're anxious or they can't fall asleep because they're worrying or anxious. And so Mm -hmm. there could be an indirect thing as well, which could be anxiety or mood disorders, which are really common. They start to flare or, you know, uh, increase if you had any type of anxiety or depression before they can flare. So there's sort of an indirect and a direct in my personal opinion, I think a lot of it is the physiologic underpinning that's waking you up. And then those indirect reasons are causing you to then not fall back to sleep, which mm-hmm. is then where it really kind of strikes. So are you saying that estrogen then does help you sleep? That's a great way to put it. I would say it's more likely that the declining levels of estrogen and your body asking for it is what mm-hmm. causes you to wake up. Okay. So I'm just thinking about my life personally, which is something I've talked about on this podcast quite a bit. I always have such a hard time sleeping a week before my period. And do you think it's because of my estrogen levels slowly decreasing that that last week? Would that make sense then? Certainly. That's when your okay. estrogen's decreasing. So your estrogen levels in a regular cycle, estrogen fluctuates anywhere from about 50 to 500 each cycle just in your bloodstream. So it's increasing from that last day you have your bleeding and it peaks ovulation and then it slowly goes back down. And then you might sleep better once you finally get your period. And it's not even so much if we want to get really nerdy about it being a high or low, that's good. But when you're ovulating and when you're on your period, those levels are steadier. But when those Uh levels are declining that week before your period, which your brain might not like. So that would make a lot of sense to me. Okay. Thank you. Because I asked my OPGYN about that and he, he, maybe that's why I need to find a female. (laughs) Um, he did not put those two and two together there. He together. thought maybe it was, yeah, he, he thought it had maybe more to do with something else. But anyway, I, I appreciate you saying that. I do. I think if there's any type of cyclic pattern that is new, that's really a pattern and it, it has, uh, it's reflective in your menstrual cycle. I think it is really worth mentioning and thinking through physiologically how that could make sense. So for example, one thing I would try for you, theoretically, right? Obviously Mm -hmm. we're not diagnosing over this podcast, but Mm -hmm. you know, what if you tried an estrogen patch the week before your period and you slept like a baby, it would be genius Mm. and it would give you the answer. Ah, okay. I'm going to talk, I'm going to talk with you after we get off the podcast about how to, and maybe you can even tell our listeners how to set up a, cause I know you do online consultations, So we'll get, we'll get to that at the end. So Nicole continue. Yeah. So Dr. Hirsch, what recommendations do you have around de- decreased sex drive? Yeah. Sex drive and vaginal dryness. 
Okay, let's do vaginal dryness because this is super easy. Vaginal dryness often is either from low estrogen. Now, there can be some other culprits, for example, birth control pills or certain other medications can cause a decrease in vaginal lubrication. But most of this is coming from the change in the vaginal tissue as we lose our estrogen. So the old term for that was vulvovaginal atrophy, i.e. dry vagina. But then physicians became smart enough to think, you know what, it's not just about the vagina, it's the urethra, it's the bladder, it's the clitoris, it's, it's the whole genitourinary system. So we now call it genitourinary system of menopause. And what I really want to say, and the message is, is that vaginal estrogen products are extremely safe and effective. And really, they should, I always say I would give vaginal estrogen to a nun because it's not just about the vagina being for sex, which certainly it is, and that ties into it, but it's going to keep the entire pelvic bowl healthy. No one really should be denied vaginal estrogen. In fact, really the only clear contraindication of vaginal estrogen is a breast cancer patient on an aromatase inhibitor, which is a very specific medication. But otherwise, vaginal estrogen does not travel systemically, and so it does not put you at any increased risk Several, several large studies have shown no increased risk of vaginal estrogen with breast cancer, breast cancer recurrence, heart disease, strokes, blood clots, etc. What so does that treatment estrogen, look like? Yeah. Well, so, you know, usually it's a twice a week application of whatever type of vaginal estrogen you your, you and your doctor decide on. And, and that's just kind of what is the, your preference. There's tab, tablets, there's creams. Um, and it's usually an application that you do twice a week at bedtime, and that's really going to help keep the tissue healthy. So that's going to keep it not being dry, which is going to mean it's not painful because libido is going to naturally decrease at menopause as we lose our testosterone, as the drive to reproduce goes down, because you may have already done that. And so it's naturally going to go down. But if we put pain on top of that, what, you know, reason? Would anyone have to engage in sexual activity other than, well, I probably should for my partner's sake, right? And that's not going mm-hmm. to keep you wanting to come back. So the very first step for me in libido is making sure and then treating, if needed, any type of pain with intercourse. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, right. Should I go? Okay. I'll just go to yeah. the next one. Um, <laughs> what about advice for sore or tender breasts? So, um, this one can be difficult, you know, usually if it's bilateral, that's a sign that it's hormonal. And so if it's hormonal, you really just kind of want to think about that time of the month, making sure you're wearing a really nice supportive bra. I mean, all of us me included have our favorite bras that are like 10 years old. We've <laughs> got to let them go. It's like really hard to get rid of your favorite one. Um, but really new bras, supportive bras that, that are not too tight, but that are just the right fit where the girls are going to be snug. Um, there's also things you can do like evening primrose oil. Sometimes that can help decrease breast pain. Uh, sometimes it has to do with if you're retaining fluid, you know, you can retain fluid in that kind of tissue. So making sure you're staying well hydrated, etc. If you have any type of warning sign about breast pain, if it's one-sided, if it's not cyclic, if your skin is changing color, if there's any type of discharge from your nipple, 
then you want to make sure you talk to your doctor. But if you sort of see a cyclic pattern or a pretty consistent pattern is both sides, that is a really good sign. It is most likely just a hormonal fluctuation. Mm-hmm. And I, I'll just add to that. I know for me, I take magnesium a week before my period and it definitely helps with breast tenderness and soreness. So I don't know. I, I think that there is actually a mechanism there with the magnesium kind of going back to what you were saying at the beginning with sleep. I think it also might help with breast tenderness. I, I don't know the exact dose. I know I take 250 milligrams, but um, yeah. it does tend to help. I like think magnesium is like the secret to everything. So, you know, uh, people travel far and wide to get consults with me. And I'm so grateful for that, that I'm always like magnesium, magnesium, but magnesium is this wonderful element. I think we all just maybe tend to be a little bit low in and it's, it's just probably natural. Um, but yeah, I think magnesium would be a really nice option to reach for as well, because it can help reduce bloating sometimes and yeah. uh, which is another symptom that might be on your list, help with sleep, sometimes help reduce migraines or at least severity mm-hmm. or frequency of migraines. So restless leg, et cetera. So yeah, take your magnesium, everyone. That is the takeaway from today's <laughs> podcast. And it's one of those, I'm not like a big fan of, of a lot of supplements, but that's one of those kind of like vitamin D where it's relatively innocuous. You've really, it's hard to take too much. I don't want to say that, but I, would, I wouldn't take more than like 500. And of course, I would definitely t- consult your doctor before doing it, but it doesn't hurt. You know, it's not something that you can really, it's, most people can, can take it without any problems. Absolutely. Yeah. And really, unless the only reason, to, you know, to be a little weary is if you have a kidney disorder, which, or chronic kidney disease, which, Mm -hmm. you know, is, um, that then you would kind of know as well you, that you'd want to talk to your doctor about taking any type of supplements. Mm -hmm. And just to reiterate too, you said bilateral pain, meaning both breasts being sore. And then what you said afterwards was if it's just the one breast and there's discharge and yeah, you want to get it, get it checked out by your, by your doctor or a breast cancer specialist, I would think. Awesome. So what about fatigue? Yeah, fatigue is huge. And there's so many reasons that we could be fatigued. And so it's a very, very broad category. But when mm-hmm. someone comes to me and they're fatigued, the first things I'm going to ask them is about their sleep. So back to that sleep, mm-hmm. because we are so underslept and or if we are in bed for a while, but the sleep quality sucks. That is going to make us super fatigued. In fact, I would almost argue that like the constant waking up and going back to sleep is more fatiguing than just getting six and a half hours of straight sleep. So Mm -hmm. it's back to the sleep. And then a a lot of it is also thinking about um, hormonal status. So I'm thinking about perimenopause. I'm thinking about thyroid conditions. I'm thinking about other supplements that can be really easy to help with fatigue. So vitamin D is a great one. And vitamin B12 are sort of my go-to for Mm -hmm. fatigue that are really easy to implement to see if they help. And then when I'm thinking about fatigue, I'm also thinking about what is your lifestyle like? So that is where it comes down to some pretty individual um, characteristics of what someone's doing with their day. But fatigue can come from so many things. You can get fatigued just by sitting in front of your computer for six hours because it itself is just fatiguing. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that is, that's really important is adding in some exercise. And it's 
always something that I tell my patients, you're so fatigued. The last thing you want to do is exercise or people say I can't exercise because I'm so fatigued. But one of the ways to treat chronic fatigue is graded exercise and graded exercise really just basically means you, you, you start really small. You know, you start with that walk around the block. You, you go further and further and further until you can add in some exercise because exercise will actually fight fatigue. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Yes. Nicole and I are avid exercisers. So we would definitely agree with that. <laughs> I will say though, not too late at night, right? Yes. <laughs> not that yeah. issue. <laughs> yeah. There's been a lot of interesting studies on the time of day and exercising. And certainly I think if anyone listens to this podcast and they exercise in the evening, you know, you kind of get this burst of uh, endorphins. And so that could spur you to want to go do like eight other projects at like 9 PM. And we don't necessarily want you to do that. I don't know really physiologically if you shouldn't, but because we all kind of know that happens, a lot of people say, you know, try, try really actually exercising early in the morning on a personal level has been so invigorating. And it's something I never did until I had to, I was forced to because mm-hmm. I had two children and all of these things and moved to a big city. And that has really shifted my life so much, but it's, it's hard. So I do also think overall, the earlier, the better for exercise, but I actually don't know if we've ever done any like randomized trials on it. Um, you know, not that we need to go down the rabbit hole too far. (laughs) I'm always telling Nicole that the sweet spot is my 5.30 a.m. wake up call for my my spin, my spinner workout. (laughs) She makes fun of me because I call the spin bike a spinner, but you know, it just (laughs) flows off the tongue. But yes, I agree. Morning workouts. I never thought I would be that person ever until I was forced to just like you. Agree. All right. So the last one we have is mood swings. I, I just listened to a recent episode on your podcast, episode 77. If anyone wants to go and listen, it was incredibly informative for me. It said it was really all about the links between pregnancy side effects and diagnoses during pregnancy and perimenopause and menopause side effects. So basically linking the two. So for example, I was I had gestational diabetes during my pregnancy. So I'm at higher risk as I approach menopause and beyond of getting diabetes. Uh, You said research is still in its infancy, but there is good data to support that women who struggled with postpartum depression are more likely to have not only PPMD, but also increased moodiness during perimenopause and menopause. So can you just explain that a bit and provide some basic tips for the moodiness? Oh, sure. So I think this is so fascinating, the links between pregnancy and perimenopause. And again, really being in the state of being postpartum myself, my baby was born a couple of weeks ago, the same or similar, I should actually say, process of that change in estrogen level, that drop in estrogen level, just like we talked about 20 minutes ago, that drop in estrogen level before your period when you go to bed, that is a little window in how you might do during your perimenopause phase where those drops become steeper and more irritating to you. Now, mm-hmm. postpartum is a huge drop in estrogen, of course. So if anyone has been postpartum and is listening, they can relate to that. You're very hormonal and moody. And certainly it's not like you're having that every month. 
But if you were really susceptible to that physiologic process of that estrogen level coming down in your brain, not liking that delta, that change from high to low, just like you really don't sleep well before your period when that estrogen goes from high to low, you are probably at increased risk for having more mood symptoms in perimenopause. So what does that mean? Well, knowing that that could happen in and of itself, I think is tremendous. And again, also circling back to what we talked about in the beginning of this podcast is even though that doesn't sound very fun, the fact that you might be prepared or you have that first time you snap at your kids over them, not putting their water bottles away. You're like, Oh yeah, (laughs) this could be me entering perimenopause. Oh, perimenopause is a thing. And so what you want to really do is start journaling or tracking before it gets to the point where you are waking up that morning rock bottom and saying, who have I turned into? I do not recognize myself anymore. Now, certainly not everyone gets there. Absolutely not. But you've got to remember as a specialist, that's typically what I see. So I am a little biased in seeing that. Um, But so education and knowing, you know, I had postpartum depression or I had a really bad postpartum court or I have had, I think, PMS or PMDD, which is essentially severe PMS my whole life. I better just kind of watch out for that as I get into my, on average, 40s, because if this becomes a pattern, perhaps I should seek out help or talk to somebody about it. And that is really cool. That means that you are being proactive about your health, which is the very best thing that you can do. So I think just knowledge about it is one of the very first things. And mood symptoms, of course, they're so multifactorial. But again, in our 40s is when life is moving very fast and the relationships in our lives become very complex as our children start to, you know, have their own opinions, as our partners you know, and, and we grow of, you know, being together many, many years. You're not in a honeymoon phase anymore, perhaps on average. And real things start to happen with parents and neighbors and work and et cetera. And so it's really multifactorial where mood symptoms can come in. But what you really want to do is think about, is this something cyclic or is this something so far out of my typical characteristic that I should sort of start watching out for this more? In terms of what else you can do, can you eat the right things? Can you sleep the right way? Can you exercise? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can do all of those things. And you should. You should be doing those anyways. But if it is something that is past the point of, well, I'm doing my morning meditation and I'm exercising and doing that, but this is still a problem, then you really need to seek support from a a physician, a clinician, um, or a psychiatrist or psychologist, uh, because this could be now a physiologic process. So if it's a hormone problem, if it's from our hormones changing or crashing or whatever that they're doing, you know, society wants to give us this constant message that we can fix it, or we should be able to fix it, or we should seed cycle. I actually don't know what seed cycling is, but my argument would still be that there's an underlying physiologic thing that we need to probably have medical treatment or at least discuss with a medical professional because, you know, there's only so much of beating yourself up that you could do. There's only so much time you should really try that for. You know, if, if you've tried something for three months, six months, and it's not feeding you, you need to do something different. Yeah. Love that. So CBD and THC gaining lots of popularity these days. Can you speak a bit as to whether or not either of these um, 
product supplements would um, kind of help alleviate PMS. I'm sorry, uh, perimenopausal symptoms. So that's a really great question. And one that I get a lot, um, you know, here's my thought process on CBD. And what did you say? THC also? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. There has really not been any research in terms of CBD, THC in, in perimenopause, menopause, sleep that, that has been substantial enough for me to clinically say, ah, this is what I think. Now, do patients come to me and tell me they've used that? Yes, absolutely. What's the oldest one of the book is alcohol. So what Mm -hmm. I think the the similarities between alcohol and CBD and THC is that what women are trying to do very astutely because women are smart, they're trying to solve their problems. They're trying Mm -hmm. to solve their problems. They're like, ah, I can't sleep. What could I do to help me sleep? I can listen to this podcast. I can do all these great things. I can read this book. None of that is working. Ah, you know what helps? Alcohol. That time I had a glass of wine, I fell asleep like a baby. Oh, my friend tried CBD. Oh, my friend had a pot brownie. Oh, and she slept like a baby. I'm going to do that too. I'm going to do that too. And let me tell you what I kind of think. I think that it's a sign that something physiologically is wrong and you are trying to fix it. There's nothing wrong with you trying to fix it. But, you know, do we know the long-term effects of CBD, THC? No. Do we know the long-term effects of alcohol? Uh-huh. And <laughs> do we, anyone think that's a great idea for you to use long-term to help you sleep? No. So could mm-hmm. CBD and THC most likely fall into a similar category? Potentially. But again, it's a signal to me. I always say to my patients, there's nothing wrong with you doing that. Um, because there is no data that I have in my hands right now. This is harmful. But it is a signal to me that you are consistently in not sleeping well and you want to seek help for that and let's do something that's potentially safer and has been better studied. So that's my answer to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I will say we actually had someone on this podcast, a dietitian. Her name is Emily Kyle and she has, she knows all about CBD and THC. And I think she would say to what you just said, um, of course, this is her forte, you know, THC and CBD. So that's like her baby. I mean, she grows it, <laughs> but well, I, I agree with, I agree with you for sure about the alcohol. I mean, we all think that alcohol will put us to sleep and it might actually help us fall asleep, but then it disrupts our sleep throughout the night immensely. So kind of like going back to what you're saying, probably not good for someone who is having hot flashes or being disrupted by other things as they approach menopause. I do think maybe not, I, I think now that we're, we're coming up with better ways to use and um, consume CBD and especially THC rather than smoking it or inhaling it. I think what the research has shown in, you know, again, very much in its infancy because it's generally THC is illegal still, you know, at least um, uh, maybe not state to state, but there's just not much research out there. But I think what they are showing is generally, I mean, the side effects are not, the long-term side effects and health effects are not going to be as detrimental as alcohol, especially with CBD. But again, like you said, we don't know enough, Um, but I am curious to really see what the research will continue to show now that the gates are kind of opening and we're allowed to actually use it more in more states and hopefully eventually, what's what's the term I'm looking for? Um, Legally throughout the United States. Uh, so hopefully they'll just do more research. So we'll actually know, because I would think that would be a better choice, at least CBD, like taking a little bit of a, a CBD 
drop of oil in your mouth to help you sleep versus, you know, drinking a beer or a glass of wine on, on a regular basis. But the bottom line is what you're saying is if you're always having trouble with sleep or other things and you're trying to almost medicate it with a, a drug that's either illegal or not, you probably need to figure out something else. So I think what you said definitely makes sense. Yeah, I have a a, a friend and colleague, Dr. Becky Lynn. And she's an OBGYN and founder of, of Evora Women's Health. And she is out in the Midwest. So I'm not going to say where because I'll get it wrong. And I know <laughs> she's been studying CBD in menopausal women and sexual health. Mm. And so there definitely is, I think, an interest in learning more and researching about this. So I absolutely agree. That is very interesting. And sexual health. Hmm, I'm intrigued by that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You'll have to reach out to Dr. Becky Lynn and see if uh, she could talk to you more and expand on that. But it's very interesting what will come from how best to use, when to use, why to use, when to use something else in that realm of CBD because yeah. it's yeah. gaining so much popularity. Yeah, it, it is. So talk to us a bit about our periods and what we can, uh, and PMS, I guess, as we kind of approach perimenopause, what can we expect? Yeah. So periods, you know, are one of the earliest signs of the underlying hormonal milieu. So tracking your periods is really helpful. Now, some women don't get periods. Some people surgically don't get periods. They take their birth control pills so they don't get a period. They have an IUD so they don't get a period. And that's okay. Um, you know, if your symptoms are good and you're kind of coasting through, then, you know, you just can't track your periods. That's okay. But if you are someone who is getting periods, um, then track them. And one of the very first things that women will notice in their perimenopausal stage is a change in the length or duration or even sometimes like consistency. I know that word sounds, it just doesn't like go with menses, but they'll notice a change in any of those things. So starting to track it can be really helpful. Now, if you're a menopause kind of geek like me, there's something called early perimenopause and late perimenopause. I actually did a YouTube video on this. So I have a YouTube channel, Health by Heather Hirsch, where I talk about how you can tell if you're in early or late perimenopause. And while it's not scientific, it's really more clinical. Typically in early perimenopause, periods might start to come faster or sooner. And then in late perimenopause, they can really start to space out like three months, six months, nine months. Mm. So, so the one benefit of menopause is no periods, <laughs> basically. <laughs> There's plenty more benefits. You're wiser. You are, you're wiser. <laughs> you don't have your periods and you're wiser and you don't have your periods, but there's plenty of other benefits. I promise you of being in menopause. You okay. might be naked sitting in a room with a bunch of fans and very moody and, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh, you guys, I just had this flashback from you saying that. Yeah. My, I'll never forget. I think I was probably 15 years old and my aunt, who's very eccentric. I love her. She was obviously going through menopause and it's Thanksgiving. Okay. And she was, you know, it, it was at, she was hosting and I'll never forget it. She opened, she had like one of those, um, you know, the left side is the refrigerator, the right side's the freezer. And she opened the freezer and she took off all her clothes and she started fanning herself with the freezer. I still have this memory like embedded in my brain. It was oh. awesome. Okay. So we are getting towards the end. Uh, and I know this is kind of, 
this is something that you just talk so much about on your podcast. And I'm just always tuned into these episodes. So I want you to talk about hormone replacements as we inch closer to perimenopause. And I know I'm, I know there's probably so you can do obviously multiple episodes on just this very topic. Um, but I guess I, I know you've touched on this a little bit, but when is the best time to start a hormone replacement therapy and how long should we be on it? Cause I get very interested when you start talking about this kind of stuff. Like my mom just told me she's been on a hormonal therapy, uh, replacement therapy regimen for, I believe, over 15 years. And I feel like you said, I don't know, give us the details about that. When's the best time to start? Why would I need it? And how long should I be on it? Yeah. Okay. Let's see. What are the cliff notes? If Yeah. Definitely. If your listeners are interested in this, you're right. I could talk about this for days. So you better watch your timers as I go. But the cliff (laughs) notes is when should you start hormone therapy? Really, it's when it's right for you. We don't use it any longer for primary prevention of things like heart disease. Um, That being said, you know, it really depends on you. So for the majority of people, it's really when you have symptoms and people will ask me, you know, how do I know when is the right time? Well, when you're having more bad days than good days, more Mm -hmm. bad or sleepless nights than good nights, more painful intercourse and no unpainful intercourse, that is when it is time. And the good news is, especially for women who start within 10 years of menopause, and yes, I have women who start in perimenopause. It's just a little bit of a different concoction. It depends if you're, you know, it's helpful for me to decipher, are you early? Are you late? Um, And obviously you can use postmenopausal doses in perimenopause, uh, Mm -hmm. but it's particularly safe for women who start within 10 years of menopause who have no known contraindications to estrogen, the big ones being breast cancer, history of breast cancer, history of a blood clot, history of a stroke. Um, Those are going to be the big ones. Mm -hmm. Now, the risk of blood clots is a thing most people ask me about. If you have been on birth control pills or had a baby, you know, or have been pregnant, uh, I should say, or clarify, or been post-op from surgery and never had a blood clot, you are likely not going to have a blood clot in postmenopausal doses of hormone therapy, which are the risk is much lower than all of those scenarios above. So that's the really the best time. And then how long can you use it for is also very individual. So I will have some people who say never take this for my cold dead hands. And, you know, the American College of OBGYN and the North American Menopause Society, so ACOG and NAMS, now has really come out to boldly say uh, there is no longer any time limit at which you need to stop Mm. hormone therapy. And the year you stop it, you may be, may be at slightly increased risks for strokes or cardiovascular disease because we are changing that endothelium again. So every time I give a lecture, I almost always have a physician that, you know, raise their hand and say, I have a lady, she's 80 years old. She will not give it up keep trying to wean her down. What should I do? And I say, leave her alone. (laughs) And then at that point, yeah, why would, why would you even, why would you stop? Exactly. So your mom, she can continue coasting. Now, on the other hand, I'll have patients who don't want to take medications, just don't like the pill burden, would rather just nothing in their body. And so every year when I see them, we discuss, is this helping you? Should we lower your dose? You know, and some people come off and they feel fine. Some people come off and they say, yeah, I'm going to go back on it. And so it's really individual, but there's no longer any time limit. 
But certainly, you know, you could also take it for a few years and then come off and do absolutely fine. And then, you know, my job as a clinician is while you're off your estrogen, continue to think about and and help you with any type of vaginal pain, vaginal dryness, your bones, your brains, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and you did say uh, maybe it's contraindicated for those who have had breast cancer, but what about someone who's at high risk because it's in their family? So I, uh, this is a great question. There really does not mean you are at any, it does not mean you are, have any contraindication to starting hormone therapy. Okay. It may mean you have a bias or a predisposed fear of, mm-hmm. of starting hormone therapy because you may have been told or the media may have taught you that it will, mm-hmm. you know, it's something you can't do. And, and that's mm-hmm. absolutely not true. And for those cases, I really sit down with my, my patients, decipher what their risk really is because risk is a very big word that can mean so many different things. And then really talk to them about their quality of life. And that's a really important point is that I just had a patient the other day who has an increased risk for breast cancer and she actually took a medication, a a anti-hormonal medication to decrease her risk. Now she's done with that treatment, but she is severely symptomatic. And I talked to her about taking estrogen, the exact, like I flipped the script on her, right? She, she's been in this high risk breast clinic. She's been taking medications, um, to decrease her risk. And here I am saying, I think you need estrogen. But what I said to her and what I would say to answer this question is there is no one, there's no crystal ball to predict the future. You could not take hormone therapy and get breast cancer. You could not, you know, you could take hormone therapy and not get breast cancer. Any scenario is possible, but for how long do we want to think about you as a pair of boobs? And how long do we want to think about you as a human who has a pair of boobs? Now, (laughs) breast cancer in this day and age, I'm going to give it to you straight, is a chronic disease. If we catch it early, it is not going to lead to your death. So what do we do? And it is at that point, it's very individual, but you know, there's just some people who have like a grandma who had breast cancer and they're like, Oh my gosh, you know, my OBGYN told me I can't take it. Okay. That is absolutely not true. That is, that is a clinician bias against hormone therapy because we've confused clinicians. Um, so there's a whole range of risk and it really comes down to what risks do you want to take? What is your quality of life? And like, how do you want to live? And Mm -hmm. if you've already thought about the various scenarios, you know, let's do the thing. Let's get you feeling good. Okay. I I love that. Thank you. That that's so, so good to hear. (laughs) Confusion clinicians. I love it. That's all over medicine, isn't it? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. 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 And you know, again, I really, um, stand by and continue to say, I do not think this is any clinician's particular fault. I think the system has failed mm-hmm. clinicians from educating them appropriately. So perhaps mm-hmm. there will come a day for our daughters um, when when midlife and menopause is treated and viewed much differently, but it's going to take a mm-hmm. long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So is there anything that we are missing? Anything else you would like to add about perimenopause and menopause that you think our listeners would appreciate? Well, that is a loaded (laughs) question because it depends Mm -hmm. how long you want this podcast to go. (laughs) But in all seriousness, I really think even 
getting this on your radar of something that could happen. Again, not all women are going to have sufferable perimenopause courses, but knowing that it's on your radar could either help you or a friend or a family member or a colleague as we start to go into our 40s. And as us women who are, I'm guessing, in our late 30s are sort of helping to really change the narrative and open the dialogue and make this not so taboo, that is such a wonderful thing to see and be a part of. So I'm excited to be on your show and I'm excited you guys have been really excited about this topic, right? It seems like it, it may be, a it's, it's certainly within the wheelhouse, but it's demonstrated that you guys have thought that this, this topic might be of really interest for your listeners just based on the fact that almost all of your listeners, if they're women, right, are going to go through this stage. And then I think journaling and tracking and knowing your body and being in tune with your body as, as sort of, you know, cheesy as that sounds can be really, really helpful because women are taught. And especially in our forties, we put everybody before us. And so if you can just keep staying in tune with what are your cycles doing? When are you not sleeping? Like that's kudos to you. You're like, ah, that week before my period, that's when I can't sleep. Those are the little things you can keep doing and stacking up to sort of um, help yourself thrive and be your best self during this time. And then finding a good doctor is key. Now that is not really, it shouldn't be something that is on you. And there's just not enough doctors who really are great with women's health in general. Um, but there are a few. Certainly, if you try the NAMS website, which is the North American Menopause Society website, you can go under find a provider. And actually, my my YouTube video that I'm going to put out um, um, next week, and as we're recording this, I think we're in April, right, of 2021, is all about, like, how to find a doctor. So there are ways to find some of us who are really knowledgeable about this. Um, and I think without uh, going too further, I would say that, that is my summary for the show for today. And I hope this has all been really helpful and I really thank you guys so much for having me on the show. Real quick before we let you go, this has been wonderful, but we do want our listeners to be able to find you on social media and of course your podcast. So can you just give us the rundown there? Oh, yes. So on Instagram, I'm at hormone.health.doc. And on YouTube, it's my channel is Health by Heather Hirsch. My podcast is Women's Health by Heather Hirsch. And my website is heatherhirschmd.com. So I really stuck with the whole Heather Hirsch thing. <laughs> so that's my name. And uh, I am delighted I get to teach women about this topic and speak on all these different platforms about how important this education and knowledge is. Thank you. This, is, this so has been much. so wonderful. Yes. <laughs> Well, thank you guys again so much for having me. Thank you for being big supporters as well of uh, everything that I've been doing and colleagues of mine. So I thank you guys just as much as you thank me. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Hirsch. And we will be listening to your podcast um, because it's amazing. And hopefully everyone else does too. So thank you so much. You're welcome. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Right, what about mom wins or favorite new products or recipes? Got a recipe. You've been giving me a hard time about all my products, all my like Amazon clothing purchases. Um, my best friend sent this to me because my kids love pot stickers. I love pot stickers. Who doesn't love pot stickers? It's, it's a yeah. pot sticker stir fry. 
So you purchased the frozen pot stickers. I found at Meyer little mini pot stickers and I thought that'd be fun. So I got those. And uh, basically I just took like a bag of those like crinkle cut carrot coins. You know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. Um, So quick, I don't have to do anything with the carrots. I buy them pre-chopped, a head of broccoli, and then a can of those like baby corns, like the little mini corns. And you just stir fry those vegetables in just a bit of olive oil, set that all aside on a plate, a little bit more olive oil, cook your pot stickers, and then just um, some teriyaki sauce, toss it all together and serve. It was so good. Piper, it was silent at my dinner table. <laughs> That's I, how I was, good it was. <laughs> it was Piper ate every last thing on her plate. Shay ate every, it was, yes. Normally we have to go ingredient by ingredient or food item by food item, what we like. And we have this mm-hmm. like, um, Shay does her thumb. Like it's either up, which is never up. Okay. Let's be honest. It's like <laughs> sideways or it's down. And she's gotten in the habit of just like critiquing every element of the meal, which can just, it's like child. I just worked all day. <laughs> you yeah. Put this meal on the table and you're picking it apart and no love, but this meal silence it was all thumbs up. So. Okay. I'm going to have to give it a try. Thank yeah. you. It came from a a blog where they um, actually used everything from Trader Joe's. Of course, we live in, you know, rural America. We don't have Trader (laughs) Joe's. So I I punted. So I'm going to put my, I'll update what I did and throw it on my blog and link it in the podcast. Okay, great. Yeah, I haven't haven't had a thumbs up meal in quite a (laughs) while. In fact, lately, Cameron has actually been throwing his food. Like he's back to being a two-year-old all of a sudden. Like, I do not even want to look at this. Here, right back in your face, mom. (laughs) Yeah, real nice. Good thing he's cute. (laughs) Yeah, seriously. All right, so mine is a product that I actually saw from Amanda of the, oh gosh, I want to say her Instagram handle is MI Nutritionist. She has a a blog called Nutritionist Reviews and she has a lot of great recipes on there. She's got some really adorable kids as well, but she, she had this post on her Instagram. It's called, it's for hairless dog brewing. And I reached out to the company. So basically what it is, is a non-alcoholic beer. And I thought, I started thinking to myself, you know, it's summer. My husband loves beer, but he doesn't drink anymore. And wouldn't it be nice if he can come out to the patio with us and enjoy a cold brew? So I thought, you know what? We'll give it a whirl. I haven't had ever a really good non-alcoholic beer. And truthfully, I've never actually really tried them, but I thought we'll give it a whirl. So we sent, I sent them an email they got right on it. They sent me a free, I think eight, I think, I think two, four packs. And let me tell you, this stuff is good. And Nick loved it as well. I wish it was local. I wish, or at least I wish they sold locally. They don't sell it anywhere here. So we had to continue purchasing it online, but it did actually kind of open the gates to us trying other beers, non-alcoholic beers at the grocery store. So far, this one has been the best. The, the hairless dog brewing is just, oh, it just tastes I mean, you know, I love beer. Delicious. And honestly, I don't miss the alcohol. Do I prefer it with alcohol? Yeah. But on a Monday night or a Tuesday night, because I don't drink during the week, I crack one of these things open. It's so good. It also only has 70 calories, probably because there's no alcohol and alcohol has calories. Uh, But that's kind of a bonus as well. But it's just delicious. If you're looking for a good non-alcoholic beer, it's called Hairless Dog Brewing. And don't ask me where it's made, but just look it up the website. I'll put the link in our show notes. All right. Uh, Minnesota. Minneapolis. Thank Any you. Any idea there on you cost? Because I'm, I'm curious. It is a little bit pricey. I want to say four, a pack of four was like $13. Okay. okay. Yeah. But anyway, worth it if you're looking for some non-alcoholic brews that are actually good. 
All right. So coming up on May 16th, we'll be dishing out our yearly healthier in a hurry episode. Until then, keep in touch with us on social media at Dietitians Dish Podcast on both Facebook and Instagram and check out all of our episodes and show notes on our website, dietitiansdishpodcast.com. Also, please tell your friends about us. They can find us on numerous outlets such as Overcast, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Pocket Cast. If you listen on iTunes, be sure to leave us a review. We promise it only takes a few seconds. All right, until next time, everyone, be well. And Nicole, we'll talk to you soon. Take care, Tina. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening for the podcast. Bye-bye.